invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 2, reading together verses 1 through 11. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. We are uh, in a series through this uh, wonderful book uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, It's been a hard book, uh, not only hard to preach, but perhaps hard even to listen to. Uh, There are hard truths, and uh, Paul does not let up even this morning. So let us uh, hear with humble hearts, uh, but hearts eager to hear the gospel of grace. Paul writes in Romans 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, When God's judgment, his righteous judgment, will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we seek to understand his word. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your holy law, your righteous judgment. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of grace that solves this great problem that we find ourselves in as we confront your holiness. So Lord, would you now open up both your law and your gospel to us, that we might be grounded all the more in our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. One of the richest privileges that elders have uh, here at Parochial Presbyterian Church, and I'm sure at other, other churches as well, is to hear the testimonies of you, the saints, as you come uh, to join our church, uh, as you rejoice in the, the, the saving grace that God has lavished upon you, we get to hear that, and we get to hear your story, and it's a, a wonderful privilege. Uh, if you are a Christian this morning, then you have a unique testimony of how the Father drew you to Christ by his Holy Spirit, uh, how you have grown up in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that that testimony, that story of grace, is something that you think about frequently and that you have opportunity to share and to to tell other people. Uh, But though everyone's story is unique, uh, as we look at the scriptures, we can see uh, different patterns and and categories of conversions and uh, of growth in the Christian life. Uh, For example, uh, some of you were like Timothy. Timothy, you remember, had a believing mother and grandmother. He grew up in a home where he was hearing the scriptures, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3. Uh, From childhood, he knew the sacred writings that give us the wisdom that make us wise unto salvation. 
Some of you don't remember a day when you didn't know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. You are like Timothy. Others of you are like the Apostle Paul. Uh, You very distinctly remember a day. Uh, There was a dramatic conversion when uh, you were brought from darkness to light, not gradually and imperceptibly, uh, but instantly and in a way that that was impossible for those around you uh, to, to not notice. One day Paul is trying to kill Christians, the next day he is one. Some of you, that is your story. That is your testimony. Or take, for instance, the, uh, the parable of uh, the prodigal son, or we might say the prodigal sons, or as Tim Keller puts it, the prodigal God. Uh, in that story, you have the younger brother, right, who is saved out of a life of open and lawless debauchery. Some of you were like him. Others you perhaps have a testimony more like the elder brother or we don't know exactly what happened to the elder brother in the story, do we? But, but some of you uh, can resonate with that elder brother. Uh, you yourself have been saved, not out of a life of, of open debauchery, but out of a life of, of hidden legalistic pride. Uh, now, there are other patterns that we might identify through the scriptures and their permutations and combinations of these. Uh, so, for instance, my own story, it's much like Timothy's. I grew up in a believing home, actually I had two believing parents, a father and a mother, unlike Timothy. I grew up never knowing a day when I didn't love the Lord and want to serve him and want to read his Bible and, 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 and grow as a Christian. And yet my story is also much like the older brothers. Right? I was the good kid. Right? I was the, the overachiever. I was uh, the kid who wanted to keep all the rules. And so, like Paul in Philippians 3, right, I put a lot of stock, a lot of trust and confidence and hope in my resume. Right? The, the good things I had done for the Lord the bad things I hadn't done. So I was a lot like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable of Luke chapter 18. You remember that parable when Jesus tells of, of two men who go up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector? The Pharisee stands and prays to himself, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like swindlers and the unjust and adulterers, and I'm not even like that tax collector over there. Right? I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But what did the tax collector do? He stood at a distance. He didn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast. He said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. As I was in high school reading that parable, confronted with the fact that even though I was a Christian, I really do believe I was a Christian at that point, but I realized that I was like the Pharisee rather than being like the tax collector as Jesus commends to us. I remember seeing my pride and my own accomplishments, and, and thinking I wasn't really that bad, and I was definitely better than those people over there. But I also knew, like Jesus tells the Pharisees, that within, right, it was full of dead man's bones in a lot of ways. There was lust. There was a, a disbelief in God's providence and promises. There was pride and, and arrogance. There was covetousness. So you see, even though I I was acting as if I was the good one and putting trust in my own righteousness, yet I knew that I was a sinner. I thought about my own story as I prepared this sermon. For you see, here in this passage, Paul is speaking to good people. He's speaking to people who are religious and moral, who haughtily stand in judgment over other people, the bad people, the people out there who commit real bad sins that are real open and overt and and blatant. 
Paul here is speaking to those who play the judge. And yet he tells them, you will be judged by the righteous judge. Apart from Jesus Christ, even you are without excuse and without escape from the righteous judgment of God. And therefore you are in grave danger. And here in this passage, Paul lays out two reasons why the prideful, religious man or woman or boy and girl is in grave danger. First, because your sin is worse than you realize. And second, because God's judgment is more severe than you acknowledge. Your sin is worse than you realize, and God's judgment is more severe than you acknowledge. Let's look at those two things this morning. First, Paul would tell us here that your sin is worse than you realize. Now, you remember that Paul closed the last section in chapter 1, verse 32, by indicting those who gave approval to the people who practiced the sins listed in chapter 1. But now in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul turns his sights on the opposite group, right? The group that rather than giving approval to those people, right, condemn and judge the people who practice those things. He speaks to this representative, imaginary person, O oh man. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Now, Paul in terms of the original audience, probably has his fellow Jews in mind in particular. He's going to make that explicit in chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, even as we saw in our reading this morning from Jonah 3 and 4, as Carl mentioned, uh, Jews were known for their contempt of Gentiles, for trusting in their external status as God's people. But you don't have to be a Jew for this passage to hit you upside the face like a two-by-four. Right? If you're moral maybe even a moral pagan. Maybe you're a Christian, but you trust in your own righteousness to a degree and you look down on others with contempt as the Pharisee in Luke 18. You see, it's very possible that you look at those sins in chapter one and you think, Man, I would never do anything like that. I can't believe, how can they even do those things? Good thing I'm a good person. Good thing God isn't talking to me here in Romans chapter one. Good thing I don't need to worry about God's wrath falling on me. Of course, it's not true, is it? None of it's true. Paul tells us here in chapter 2 that, that those who judge others, who look down on others, who condemn others, are themselves self-condemned because they do the exact same things. You remember when Nathan comes to David in 2 Samuel and tells him of a, a rich man who, who stole the, 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 the ewe lamb from the poor man so that he could serve his, his dinner guests with food. And David in, in anger says, that man deserves to die. And what does Nathan do? He turns it around and he says, you are the man. Right? Because of your murder of Uriah and your adultery with Bathsheba, you are the man. David in saying that he deserved to die was condemning himself. And Paul here is telling us that so is everyone who judges and looks down on those who are blatantly wicked those whom God has given over to their sin. Because, Paul says, we know, all of us know, that we all do the same things as the lawless Gentiles. Now, yes, you may not bow down to statues and images, but you have idols in your heart. You may not be guilty of homosexual passions, as we read in Romans 1, but there's more than one way to break the seventh commandment. 
And as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, your lust, your sexual fantasies are just as guilty before the sight of God as the homosexual indulgence that we read of in chapter 1. You see, everyone fits the description there in verses 29 through 31. And so your judging, Paul says, is hypocritical. To use Jesus' imagery in Matthew 7, you are noticing very clearly the speck in your brother's eye. But you're not seeing the log in your own eye. And so you are just as deserving of God's wrath for your actions as the flagrantly wicked, the overtly wicked, the openly wicked. Chapter 2, verse 2, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And he he goes on to say in verse 3, there is no escape. There is no escape. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? And yet how easy it is, right? How easy it is to excuse our own behavior and to condemn others who are visibly more evil than we. To put our sins on one side of the scale and to put the sins of someone else on the other side And to congratulate ourselves that their sins are much heavier than ours are, right? The scale does this. And here we are. Ah, we're not that bad. And look how bad they are. But Paul says, no, the truth is that your sins are heavier. At least just as heavy, but but really they're heavier. Why? Because not only do you do the same things that the world does, but you add to that sin a prideful arrogance that refuses to see that you are sinful, refuses to see that that you are just as bad, if not worse, than they are. And you heap upon your sin contempt with regard to them. Think about it. The, The younger brother, the tax collector, they knew they were a mess compared to God and other people. They knew it. They knew that about themselves. Every morning they woke up drunk from a hangover. Right? They knew that they were a mess. Whereas the elder brother, the Pharisee, when he looked in the mirror, he was blinded by his pride. He saw a beauty rather than a beast. And so our pride makes us even more guilty, Paul is saying. And on top of all that, Those who are moral, those who are religious, those who haven't sinned perhaps in the manner of of some of uh, of the overt and blatant ways that we read there in chapter 1, our sin is in spite of God's kindness to us. Do you see what Paul says there in verse 4? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Think of how kind God has been to you. Think of how patient God has been to you. And yes, it's true. Perhaps he has kept you from some of the the grosser violations of his law. He's not given you over to more and more sin. But do you take God's patience for granted? Do you treat his kindness lightly and flippantly and carelessly? Do you treat God's mercies to you as if you deserve them, as if you are owed them? Do you assume that God will be kind to you no matter what, that that somehow you get a pass, that he doesn't really care about your continued disobedience? The truth is that you are here alive only by mercy. The only reason why God hasn't struck you dead 
and judgment this morning for the sins you have committed from the time you woke up to now at 9.20. The only reason is because of God's forbearance and long-suffering. And yet, how often do we get mad at God for things not working out the way they ought to in our life? Do you see the pride? Do you see the sin? And so Paul here is telling us, you are in grave danger because you are far worse than you realize. Your sin is far worse than you realize. You do what the world does. You pridefully judge and look down on the world for doing the same things that you do. And you treat God's rich kindness dismissively. You continue in hard-hearted sin rather than letting his kindness drive you to repentance. And so Paul writes in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Every day you are making spiritual deposits into your eternal retirement account, as it were. You are piling up more and more fury for yourself on the last day of judgment. You will reap what you have sown, Paul says. And that brings us to the second reason why the moralist, the legalist, the one who trusts in himself that he is righteous and looks down on others with contempt, why that person is in such grave danger. Second, because God's judgment is more severe than you acknowledge. You see, this passage is crystal clear. Just as Abraham in Genesis asked rhetorically of God before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Paul is asserting the judge of all the earth will do what is right and just. Again, verse 2, Paul writes, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Literally, that phrase is, God's judgment is according to truth. It's always according to the facts of the case, all of them. Verse 3 tells us, again, that God's judgment is universal. It is inescapable. Verse 5 calls God's judgment a righteous judgment. In verse 11, Paul says that God shows no partiality. He does not regard a face. You take all this together, and what you have here is Paul painting a picture for us of a judgment that is always just, always flawless, always according to truth. God is a referee who never misses a call, right? who never botches a call, who, who never messes up a call because he doesn't have the right angle, right? or because he makes a mistake, his judgment Paul is saying, is, is never capricious or arbitrary or flawed. It's never tilted right, in favor of one group over against another. He doesn't have a bigger strike zone for some people than he does for other people. He's not a hometown ref who's going to always call it for the home team and, and never call it for the visiting team. No, you might say he's like a blind taste tester right, who, who, who blindly judges he judges strictly on the merits of each individual case, and his palate is impeccable. He never makes a mistake. He calls it fair on all sides, and he calls it like he sees it, and he always sees it properly. No one is immune from his judgment, Paul is telling us here. Of course, again, the Jews in Jesus' day and Paul's day, they thought that they would escape God's judgment because of their special relationship with God, because of their ethnicity, their genealogy, their supposed keeping of God's law. But part of Paul's point throughout this letter is to show that God does not play favorites based on any human characteristics, not even with the physical descendants of Abraham. Paul here is reiterating 
what John the Baptist had told the Pharisees in, in Matthew chapter 3 when he says, don't suppose that you can say for yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. You see, the Jews, Paul tells us there in verse 9 and verse 10, the Jews will be judged first of all. They'd they be held to a stricter judgment because they had received so much and yet had rejected it. And how many professing Christians, how many covenant children are just like the Jews of old, thinking that God will treat them with kid gloves, with greater leniency, that he'll turn a blind eye to their sins because of who their parents are, because they show up at Sunday school or corporate worship morning and evening, because they were baptized and went through the communicants class, putting trust in external ritual, external things that in of themselves are good, are important, are necessary, and yet never to be trusted in. You see, the professing people of God have always been held to a higher standard to whom much is given, much will be required. God's judgment is far more severe than you might acknowledge. And as Paul tells us in verses 6 through 11, God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't grade relative to how everyone else did on the test. No, on the last day, God is going to render judgment according to your works, Paul says. And the result will not be pretty. And I'll be honest, verses 6 through 11 are, are difficult verses. They're difficult to understand exactly what Paul is saying. It's possible that in verse 6, when he quotes from Proverbs 24, verse 12, and from a couple other Old Testament passages, when he says that, that God is going to render to each one according to his works, it's possible that he's quoting this verse in the same way that he does in 2 Corinthians 5.10, uh, which speaks clearly of, of all mankind, even believers in Jesus, standing before the judgment seat of Jesus and receiving recompense, reward for what they have done in the body, whether good or bad. And some biblical commentators take these verses in that way, but I'm convinced that what Paul is doing here in verses 6 through 11 is the same thing that Jesus did with the rich young ruler. Do you remember that story? He came up, he ran up, the text tells us. He knelt before Jesus and he said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Why do you ask me about what is good? No one is good except God alone. And then he says this, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the man says, which ones? He says, well, you know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud honor your father and mother. You kind of scratch your head and you read this story and you're like, wait a minute, is Jesus telling this man right, that he can earn his salvation by obeying the Ten Commandments? The answer is yes. He actually is telling the man that. He is telling this man who comes with a legal spirit and a desire to earn eternal life by his obedience. And Jesus answers him truthfully in line with that legal spirit. He says, yes, you, you think that you can do good things to earn eternal life? Well, the fact is you actually can. If you're perfect and obey everything that God has commanded you, yes, you will earn eternal life. You, you stand perhaps like Adam. And you could do everything perfectly. You would have eternal life. If you could be as good as God, and you'll enter into eternal life through your works, through your obedience. You see, that's what Paul is saying here, I think. 
On the last day, God is going to judge us according to our works, what we've done. Look at what he says. To those who by patience, by perseverance and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. But of course, Paul is trying to drive home the same point that Jesus was trying to drive home with that rich young ruler. Everyone is in the category of verse 8. No one is in the category of verse 7. No one is good enough to gain eternal life on their own. You see, when Jesus gave his answer, the man got excited. And he said, oh, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. And what did Jesus say to him? Actually, Mark tells us that Jesus looked on him with love, with pity. And he said, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And what happened? The man goes away sad because he was rich. What was Jesus doing? Jesus is doing several things in what he's saying, but one of the things, the main things he's doing is showing the man that, no, you haven't actually kept the commandments from your youth up like you think you have. In fact, you haven't even kept the first commandment. You love your money more than you love God. You're not willing to give up your money to gain God. The man was being shown his sin. Jesus, by presenting the law of God, was seeking to disabuse this man of his self-righteousness was seeking to reveal to him that, no, you are not good. You are a sinner. In Adam and in your own life, you have broken God's law. You can do nothing good in God's sight. You deserve wrath and punishment. And that's what Paul is doing here in verses 6 through 11. Look what he's going to go on to say in in verse 13. He's going to say, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You're like, wait a minute. Paul, are you contradicting salvation by grace? And the answer is no. The truth of the matter is, you must keep the law perfectly if you want to be saved. But unfortunately, none of us do. No one perseveres in well-doing. Because of our sin, none of us can earn eternal life based on our own works. God's judgment is severe. It's rigorous. It's precise. It's searching. He doesn't just sweep our sin under the rug. There can be no misstep, no faltering, no stumbling. And therefore, no one can keep the conditions that Paul sets forth here in verses 6 through 11. As James 2.10 puts it, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. So where does that leave us? We've seen Paul tell us that Your sin is worse than you realize, and God's judgment is more severe than you acknowledge. You deserve God's wrath, and it is what you will receive if left to yourself. Your only hope, the hope that Paul is seeking to drive you to this entire first three chapters of Romans, your only hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that has been revealed in the gospel Jesus is the one who has 
taken upon himself the full wrath and fury of God in the place of his people, those whom the Father has given him from before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the second Adam who has obeyed the law of God perfectly. He's the only one who by patience and well-doing has gained eternal life for us, his sheep. Through his righteousness, credited to our account through faith, we can stand confidently, faultlessly, blamelessly, without fear before the throne of God. So here in this passage, Paul and God through Paul is calling each and every one of you to repent and to believe the gospel, especially if you're the good kid, right? especially if you think you do a pretty good job keeping God's law, maybe even from your youth. Paul wants to say, no, you're a sinner and you deserve wrath. And you are called to repent because remember, that's why God has been so kind and forbearing and patient with you to lead you to repentance, a change of mind regarding your sin, regarding God, regarding judgment, a change in mind that leads you to flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to Jesus Christ, by taking shelter under his obedience and his blood. What did Jesus say to the Jews in Luke 13? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We must repent. I love the way that our Westminster Larger Catechism describes, defines repentance. They write this, Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of a sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness, the odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he grieves for, he hates his sin, as that he turns from them all to God, purposing, endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. Do you see your sin? Do you see the danger of your sin? Do you see the filthiness of your sin? Do you see its odiousness? It's putrid stench in the sight of God. But do you also see God's mercy in Christ Jesus to those who are penitent? Do you grieve for your sin? Do you hate your sin? And so do you constantly turn away from it in humility? You see, repentance always is accompanied by, always goes along with saving faith, that grace whereby we, convinced of our sin and misery, of our disability to save ourselves. We flee to Jesus Christ. We receive, we rest upon him alone for salvation, for pardon, for righteousness. Do you see, even you who are Christians, maybe have been Christians all your life, do you see again this morning that you must believe in Jesus Christ? No matter how good you think you are, no matter how good you think you've been, no matter how much better you think you are than other people, your sin is worse than you realize, and God's judgment is more severe than you acknowledge. You're not nearly as good as you think you are. God is not nearly as sort of a beneficent you know, grandfather who's going to say, ah, come here, don't worry about it. God is not like that. He is a holy judge. His judgment is far more dangerous than you might think it is. And so the only response 
is to trust in Christ. We're about to sing Rock of Ages. And the words in the second and the third verses so beautifully depict the response of the believer. If you want to turn and look at it there in number 500, Augustus Top Lady writes this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. He realizes he is naked. He realizes he is helpless, and he looks to God for grace. He realizes he is foul. He is dirty. And so I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If you cannot sing this song from the heart, you are not yet saved. But if you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then you will sing this song and it will never grow old because this song is the song of the redeemed. The truth in these words are the truth that Paul would drive us to here in this text, that we might flee to Jesus Christ and to his righteousness, to his blood all of our days. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those who are still trusting in themselves that they are righteous, still looking down on others with contempt. Oh Lord, would you convict them of their self-righteousness and the danger of it. Convict them, O oh Lord, of their need for Christ. Convict them, O oh Lord. Humble them. Help them to be able to say with the tax collector, have mercy on me, the sinner. Lord, may we see ourselves not in relation to other people, but in relation to you and your holiness alone. Lord, give grace, we pray, to fly to Christ anew every day, to rest our weary and sin-sick souls in him. Lord, we come through him even now in prayer. Amen.